Well, when you hear those trombones play, that's time for birthday announcements. For Thursday, November 2nd, we have several listeners celebrating today. Lita Sears of Council Bluffs. Happy birthday, Lita. And Albert Abbas of Ackley. Albert, we hope you have a great and wonderful birthday. And James Canny from Atumwa is celebrating today. Happy birthday, James. And happy birthday to Mary Bertlow of Waterloo. Mary, we hope you're going to have a wonderful day. Krista Lilly from Nora Springs is also having a birthday. Krista, all of us here at Iris wish you, Mary, James, Albert, and Lita, a very happy birthday. Let's take a look at some uh, celebrities that are sharing this day with you for a birthday. Actor Stephanie Powers is 81. Singer-actor J.D. Souther of Nashville is 78. Actor Kate Linder of The Young and the Relentless is 76. Singer K.D. Lang is 62. And actor David Schwimmer of Friends is 57. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television or Iowa PBS and are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now we'll turn to Lisa to get us started on obituaries. Garth Darrell Barker of Ankeny. Garth Darrell Barker, age 75, died from heart failure on October 26 at the Bridges in Ankeny. He was born on July 31, 1948 to Maisel and Darrell Barker. He lived in Des Moines until 2004, then he moved to Altoona. In 2020, he moved to Ankeny. He attended North High School. He worked for the state of Iowa as a custodian cleaning the state capitol from 1978 to 1996. Garth enjoyed buffing the marble floors on the evening shift. Garth previously attended Marine Church in Pleasant Hill and Adventure Life Church in Altoona. He was preceded in death by his parents, brothers, William Gale Barker and David Barker, and niece Kimberly Fears. Garth is survived by his sister Gloria Kay and spouse Bruce. Wardenburg of Ankeny and nephew Bill Barker of Huxley. Services will be held on Saturday, November 4th at 10 a.m. at Hamilton's near Highland Memory Gardens in Des Moines. Family will greet guests one hour prior to services at the funeral home. Burial will take place at Highland Memory Garden Cemetery in Des Moines. Memorial contributions may be made to his family who will donate at a later date to the Ankeny Fire Department in his name for all of their help to Garth. Thomas Gordon Coda of Sioux Falls. Thomas Tom Gordon Coda, born in Des Moines on June 8, 1940, died on September 23rd at the Doherty Hospice House in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A memorial service and interment will be held Saturday, November 4th at the Columbarium in Glendale Cemetery on University Avenue in Des Moines at 10 a.m., the reception will follow at the Basilica of St. John on University Avenue in Des Moines. The family requests no gifts or flowers. Tom was a graduate of Dowling High School and worked for the United States Postal Service until his retirement in 1996. He married Marianne Wynn on September 11, 1965, and Carol. 
they retired to Apache Junction, Arizona in 1998. He was an avid fisherman for much of his life. He is preceded in death by his wife, Mary, and his parents, Gordon Sylvester and Florine Agnes Coda. He is survived by his children, Catherine Coda and Robert with Christian Coda and his grandson, Gordon. Polly Porter of Iowa City. Polly Olson Porter came from a loving family, married into a loving family, and together with her husband Jim, created a loving family. She passed peacefully on October 27th next to her devoted husband, bravely spending her final weeks under the care of Iowa City Hospice at the Bird House. She is dearly missed and forever loved by her husband Jim, her children, Tim and, and spouse Mary, Annie and spouse Kyle, Patrick and spouse Mary, are Marie and Jamie, her three grandchildren, Madeline, Grace, and Rory, her brothers Jim and sister-in-law Meredith, and Tim and sister-in-law Tony, and many cousins, nieces, nephews, and dear friends. She is preceded in death by her parents and her brother Tom. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Doctors Without Borders or the Birdhouse. A memorial service will be held on December 9th at 3 p.m. at Lensing Funeral Home in Iowa City, shared remembrances and a dinner will follow the service at the Kirkwood Room. Online condolences may be sent to her family at www.lensingfuneral.com, where the, the full obituary may also be read. Philip F. Phil Latessa of West Des Moines. Philip Latessa died on October 27th of a heart attack while on vacation. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, November 3rd at Isles Westover Chapel. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, November 4th at St. John's Lutheran Church on 6th Avenue in Des Moines. A lunch celebrating his life will be held at St. John's immediately following the service. Interment at Jordan Cemetery in West Des Moines will follow. Phil Latessa was born on February 3rd, 1944 in Lowell, Massachusetts to Hilda Camera Latessa and Philip Anthony Latessa. He attended public schools there, graduating from Lowell High School in 1961. He attended Northeastern University in Boston, graduating with a BA in economics in 1967 and an MA in economic development in 1969. He married Donna Louise Lorenzen in 1967. They had two children, Michelle, Elizabeth and Michael Eric. He and Donna were divorced and in 1988 he married Judy Curtis. Prior to completing his graduate studies at West Virginia University, he and Donna moved to Iowa where he was employed at the Iowa Regional Medical Program from 1970 to 1976. He then joined the staff of the Iowa Hospice Association where he served as a department manager, vice president, senior vice president of service share, the association's business company, and as president of the Iowa Hospital Education and Research Foundation. There he managed a series of grant programs including two five-year medical exchange programs in Russia. He traveled there over 40 times. After 25 years with the Iowa Hospital Association, he left to serve as executive director of Iowa's sister states where he managed exchange programs with Iowa's eight sister states around the world. He retired in 2009. 
in retirement. He was one of the founders of Empower Tanzania Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of people in that poor country. He served as president of the board of directors and as executive director. He visited Tanzania over 30 times and was made honorary chief of two tribes of the Maasai. He and Judy love to travel to international locations and to the national parks in the U.S. An avid reader of history and politics, he wrote a book of his international experiences, Surviving Vodka Toasts and Rampaging Elephants. Phil is survived by his wife, Judy Curtis Latessa, son, Michael Latessa, daughter, Michelle Eric, with spouse Eric Zepeda, stepson, Clint Curtis, grandchildren, Elizabeth Latessa, Emily Davis, Abigail Latessa, Liam Curtis, and Henry Curtis, his brother, Daniel, and sister-in-law, Norma Latessa, as well as several nieces, nephews, and their families. He was preceded in death by his parents, Hilda and Philip Latessa. He wishes to thank his wife, Judy, his colleagues, Dr. Douglas Dorner, Dr. Jeffrey Carruthers, Dr. Yogesh Shah, Dr. Jeff Reisman, Donald Dunn, Alan Hoffman, Frank Trumpy, and many other people who inspired him throughout his life. Donations should be made to Empower Tanzania Incorporated or St. John's Lutheran Church in Des Moines. Online condolences are welcome at www.islescares.com. In remembrance of Max Kenton Fonlander of Urbandale, Iowa, he passed away on October 27th of this year. It was his 16th birthday. He died at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines after losing his battle with depression. Visitation will be held from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Friday, November 3rd, 2023, at Holy Trinity Catholic Church at 2926 Beaver Avenue in Des Moines. The Mass of Christian Burial for Max will be Saturday, November 4th at 10 a.m., Holy Trinity Catholic Church, 2926 Beaver, Des Moines. Burial will be in Glendale Cemetery in Des Moines. A luncheon will follow at Holy Trinity Catholic School. He was the third child born to Matt and Tammy Fodlander on October 27, 2007 at OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria, Illinois. The family moved to Urbandale when Max was a baby. His siblings are Noel, Brady, Timmy, and Bridget. Max attended Holy Trinity Catholic uh, School through 8th grade. He was a sophomore at Dowling Catholic High School. Max cherished his faith, family, and country. He recently mentioned interest in joining the Army. He chose St. Francis of Assisi as his saint for his upcoming confirmation as they both shared a love of nature and animals. Max loved trying to make his peers laugh, listening to and making music, and going for long walks on the many trails in Urbandale. He enjoyed family time, making up games and adventures with his many cousins, and spending time on the family farm. He also loved sports, both watching his beloved Green Bay Packers and Iowa State Cyclones, and playing football through his freshman year at Dowling. Additionally, he enjoyed playing baseball, basketball, swimming, and golfing at the annual family tournament in northwest Iowa. Max was looking forward to being involved in the Dowling Catholic Boys Swimming Program this year. As an organ donor, Max saved many lives, leaving this world the true hero he always wanted to be. 
In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions can be made in Max's honor to Mind Spring Mental Health Alliance and Holy Trinity Catholic School with funds to be used for bullying prevention. Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory, Urbandale, Iowa, is in care of the arrangements. In remembrance of David W. Gerwell of Iowa City, holding his hand, David, 71, of Iowa City, passed away into the great unknown on October 29th. His passing followed 15 months of loving and living life as fully as he could while being treated for brain cancer. A service of remembrance will be held at 3.30 p.m. on Thursday, November 9th at the Terry Trueblood Pavilion, and that's at 579 McAllister Boulevard, Iowa City. Visitation will be from 3 to 5 p.m. The complete obituary and online condolences can be seen at www.lensingfuneral.com. And finally, in remembrance of Penny Hansen, age 79 of Des Moines. She passed away peacefully, surrounded by family, on Tuesday, October 31, at Glen Oaks Alzheimer's Specialty Care Center in Urbandale. Penny was born January 2, 1944, in Des Moines, to Henry Milton Johnson and Mary Jane Moreland Johnson. She was born at 22 weeks gestation, proving to everyone that she was truly a miracle. Penny graduated from Lincoln High School in Des Moines. She worked for many years at Woodward Acoustic Center, both in a secretarial role and also helping Dr. Woodward to make ear mold impressions for hearing aid devices. Penny's passion was for her students at Hillis Elementary School and the Hillis community where she served in many capacities, including noontime associate for 28 years and as a volunteer in the library. Her Hillis students affectionately refer to her as Ms. Penny. Penny loved decorating for every theme and holiday, both at the school and at her home. She loved preparing contests for the kids and would provide them generous prizes of her own devising. Outside of her career, Penny devoted time to Democratic Party campaigns. She loved taking uh, outings, shopping, and getting Manny and Petties. Uh, Penny enjoyed time spent at the family lake house. She liked sunbathing, swimming, and water aerobics. Traveling held great joy for Penny, and she treasured the memories of trips she took with family to Cancun, the Bahamas, New York, and others. Her home was filled with music and the love of her family, including her pets. Penny was preceded in death by her husband, Michael Hansen, and her parents. Visitation will be held on Sunday, November 5th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Hamilton's Funeral Home at 605 Lyon Street, Des Moines. Funeral service will be Monday, November 6th, also at Hamilton's, beginning at 11 a.m. Cremation will follow the service. There will be a luncheon held Monday at 12.30 p.m. at Grace Lutheran Church. Address is 5201 Urbandale Avenue, Des Moines. Internment in the Hansen Family Mausoleum at Woodland Cemetery in Des Moines will take place at 1 p.m. Tuesday, November 7th, 
For those unable to attend the service on Monday in person, it will be live-streamed through Penny's obituary listing on Hamilton's website. In lieu of flowers, contributions may be directed to Alzheimer's Association in loving memory of Penny. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. And now we'll return to Lisa for more news articles. All right, this is from the front page of the or front page section of the Des Moines Register. Fed leaves interest rate unchanged, but officials suggest boosts may not be over. This is written by Paul Davidson, Cherise Jones, Midori Lee, and Bailey Schultz for the USA Today. The Federal Reserve held its key interest rates steady Wednesday, but left the door open to another hike, possibly as soon as December, amid a remarkably strong economy and job market. The decision leaves the Fed's benchmark short-term rate at a 22-year high of 5.25% to 5.5% following an aggressive campaign of rate increases aimed at taming the nation's biggest inflation surge in four decades. It remarks the first time the Fed has left its federal funds rate unchanged at consecutive meetings in nearly two years. The move was widely expected. Chair Jerome Powell said in a speech last month, that a recent spike in 10-year Treasury bond yields could take the place of additional rate increases, at least for the short term. Wednesday's decision provides another break for for consumers who have faced a flurry of rate increases for credit cards, adjustable rate mortgages, and other loans as a result of the Fed's moves. However, the bank signaled Wednesday that it may still raise short-term rates further as consumer spending remains strong, and the job market continues to thrive. In a statement after a two-day meeting, officials repeated that in determining the extent of additional rate increases that may be appropriate to lower inflation to the Fed's 2% goal, they will assess the lags with which its rate hikes affect the economy, inflation, and economic and financial developments. The Fed's next meets on December 12th through the 13th car loans, mortgages, and credit cards aren't going anywhere. The Fed doesn't directly set mortgage rates, but its actions have pumped up the yield on the 10-year Treasury bond. That is used as a guide for setting interest on 30-year loans and has helped fuel higher mortgage rates, according to experts. Last week, 30-year fixed mortgage rates climbed to 7.79%. This mortgage interest rate is pricing out some first-time homebuyers by reducing housing affordability, especially with the rise in it in home prices, said Jessica Louts, the association's deputy chief economist. It's unlikely auto loan rates will fall much, if at all. In the first three months ending in September, annual percentage rates for both used and new vehicles loans rose to 7.4% and 11.2%, respectively, the highest levels since 2007, according to car research platform Edmunds. Spiked interest rates remain the biggest impediment to affordability, said Jessica Caldwell, Edmonds Head of Insights. The expectation is rates will remain high or even increase slightly through the end of the year, which may help tame inflation in the long run, but is inflating monthly payments for now. 
Sales of electric vehicles with their already hefty price tags may be suffering the most. Inventories are piling up and automakers are cutting production in response despite many government tax breaks. Nor will consumers' credit card debt get less expensive. Rates on cards have reached historic highs, largely in response to the Fed's actions in 2022 and 2023. No one should think that credit card APRs are going to stop climbing anytime soon, said Matt Schultz, chief credit and analyst at LendingTree. They won't rise as rapidly as they have in the past 18 months, but they're most likely going to keep rising at least a little bit and at least for a while longer. The average APR on a new credit card offer is 24.46%, the highest since LendingTree started tracking in 2019. The average APR on a card that carries a balance is a record 22.27%, according to Fed data. Store credit cards are worse, with rates commonly at 30% and some as high as 35%, Schultz said. Consumers should resist the temptation to get one while shopping this holiday, he said. Credit card analysts see those rates as a red flag as the nation heads into gift season. Inflation-weary shoppers may be tempted to put big purchases on a new store card, unaware of the interest they will face if they carry the balance into the new year. Those with credit card debt should pay down as much debt as possible, roll over balances to a 0% interest card if possible, or call their issuer and ask for a lower rate. There is one silver lining in the Fed's rate hikes. For the first time in years, consumers can earn good interest on their savings. So far, the U.S. economy has largely shrugged off the Fed's sharp rate increases with consumers spending more despite those high interest rates and inflation. In its statement, the Fed said economic activity expanded at a strong pace in the third quarter and job gains have moderated since earlier in the year but remain strong. That marks an upgrade from its previous description. The central bank also said tighter financial and credit conditions for households and business are likely to weigh, an economic, uh, weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. The value of all services and goods made in the U.S. or the GDP grew at a seasonally adjusted 4.9% for the year in the period spanning July to September, according to the Commerce Department. That consumer spending may help stave off a recession, said Barclays economist Jonathan Miller. Economists polled in September said there was a 48% chance the U.S. will experience a downturn over the next year, a drop from 61% odds projected in May. Fed policymakers are wrestling with a central question. Is the sturdy economy a good thing because it suggests the U.S. could dodge a recession despite the sharp decline in borrowing costs or a bad thing because it could keep inflation higher for longer? The Fed's preferred annual inflation measure, which excludes food and energy costs, has fallen substantially since last year but stayed stubbornly high at 3.7% in September. Economists expect the measure to decline more rapidly in coming months as rate hikes and employee wage growth slow. Thank you, Lisa. We now turn to news from the 50 states. Alabama. 
The city and its water and sewer board have been subject to plenty of lawsuits over the years, but this month they took a step toward progress as the sewer board voted to accept a project proposal to evaluate alternative wastewater disposal options and perform a sewer rate study. In Alaska, authorities say a state trooper fatally shot a man who was brandishing a rifle outside a motel. The State Department of Public Safety says the trooper was responding to a 911 call about a man trying to break into a motel room. From Phoenix, Arizona, a federal appeals court is giving abortion rights advocates a chance to revive their bid to block a state law that restricts abortions due to the presence of a fetal genetic abnormality, such as Down syndrome. Little Rock, Arkansas. Police said they had located a three-day-old baby who had been reported missing from his home in the city after an Amber Alert was issued. News outlet KARK reported. A suspect in the case was identified as a 38-year-old woman, according to the news outlet. Santa Ana, California, a federal judge has blocked the state's ban on gun shows at county fairs, ruling that the state is violating the rights of sellers and would-be buyers by prohibiting transactions for firearms that could be bought at any gun shop. Penrose, Colorado, families have filed a lawsuit against the funeral home, that was allegedly sending families fake ashes and leaving at least 189 loved ones' bodies to decay in the facility. The gruesome discovery was made at Return to Nature Funeral Home after reports of an abhorrent smell. Connecticut, a police officer who shocked a shoplifting suspect three times with a stun gun, including when the man was on the ground apologizing, has been charged with assault and cruelty. Officer Nicholas Cahos turned himself into state police after an arrest warrant was issued, state police said. And again, that was in Naugatuck, Connecticut. Dover, Delaware. If you're wanted in Delaware, this Friday may be the easiest time to resolve it. The state judiciary is hosting another safe surrender event. Along with judges, there will be public defenders, prosecutors, police, and probation officers working to resolve warrants and, uh, and I'm going to spell this word for you, C-A-P-I-A-S-E-S, from any state court. District of Columbia, Healthcare workers at Unity Healthcare, the city's largest community health center, have moved to form a union, WAMU reported. Workers cited the center's push to maximize patient visits at the cost of providing quality care and at the risk of high staff turnover and burnout, according to the news outlet. From Florida, leaders of a private foundation working to build a museum and memorial to honor the victims of a massacre at the gay nightclub Pulse say they are dropping their plans to build a museum. However, the city is going ahead with plans to build a memorial. Atlanta, Georgia. Two juvenile court judges say the head of the state's child welfare agency asked judges to violate state law. They say Human Services Commissioner Candace 
uh, Brosey, ask judges to keep some children inappropriately locked in juvenile detention centers. And from Hawaii, Maui police held a news conference to show 16 minutes of body camera footage taken the day a wildlife tour through the town in August. The video includes shots of officers recruiting 15 people from, or they were rescuing 15 people from a coffee shop and taking a severely burned man to a hospital. And now we'll ask Lisa to continue with the 50 states. Idaho, uh, Post Falls, Idaho, area food banks are reporting record demand with the executive director of one food bank saying it has been distributing as much as 65,000 pounds of food a month, the Coeur Darling Press reported. The food banks cited inflation as a reason for the rise in demand, according to the news outlet. From Springfield, Illinois, a man police say is a suspect in a Chicago slang has been charged with attempted murder in the shooting of a state trooper during a traffic stop in Springfield. State police said the trooper approached the man's vehicle when the trooper was shot in the leg. From Seymour, Indiana, a suspect has been arrested in connection with a Halloween 1982 cold case slang, according to an announcement from state police on the 41st anniversary of the crime. Police say detectives arrested a man on a charge of murder in a shooting death of a 24-year-old Clifford Smith. From Des Moines, Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds vigorously defended the state's $2 million deployment to the U.S.-Mexico border, criticizing the way President Joe Biden has approached border policies and emphasizing the harms that drug trafficking poses to Iowans. From Topeka, Kansas, a judge has put a state law on medication abortions on hold and blocked the state from enforcing older restrictions. The order from a district judge suspended laws that have been spelled out what providers must tell patients and have forced patients to wait 24 hours to end their pregnancies. And finally, from Kentucky, Inez, Kentucky, at least one of two workers trapped at a collapsed coal preparation plant that being was being demolished at an abandoned mine site have died, Governor Andy Bashir said. Officials didn't know the extent of the other man's injuries. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Lisa Horsch and Dave Stutz. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Teresa Whitaker, and Dorothy Hockenberg. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Dorothy with our next article. This is by Kathy Keeley, K-I-E-L-Y, guest columnist. The title is Nebraska Governor Takes Page Out of Tyrant's Handbook. When I moved into the classroom full-time, after four decades on the beat and in newsrooms, I thought I was well-equipped to prepare a new generation of journalists for the challenges that await them. I was wrong. It's not the pedagogy that's flummoxed me. It's not the technology. It's the hostility that I now find myself trying to coach my students to rise above. Weeks after I arrived on the campus of the Missouri School of Journalism, a student on a routine assignment was spat upon in 2018 and called fake news. A year or so ago, two student reporters for our NPR affiliate at a political rally to which the station had been invited were told to go back to China. We never publicized the incident, but did call it to the attention of a party leader who apologized to editors in private conversation. Now it has happened again. My colleagues at the Missouri School of Journalism and I have learned that one of our most outstanding young alumni has become the latest target of this sort of hate speech. Only this time, it did not come from some random ignoramus. In a radio interview, Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen was asked to respond to a story written by Flatwater Free Press reporter Yen Chi Shu. It detailed high levels of the pollutant nitrate found in the groundwater near his family's massive hog operations. First, Pillen said he hadn't read the story. Then he added, all you got to do is look at the author. The author is from communist China. What more do you need to know? Way to change the subject, Governor. And irony alert. For someone who's so seemingly appalled by a despotic regime, way to adopt its tactics. I'll leave it to Yankee's editor. Matt Wynn to tell you what more you need to know about this fine young journalist who grew up in Guangzhou, earned her master's degree at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and joined the Flatwater Free Press in Omaha two years ago. He sums it up as well as any of her admiring mentors could. Let's focus on the tax tactics used to question her. Helen's gambit was clearly an attempt to distract public attention from his own problems by smearing the messenger. It's a page straight out of the dictator's handbook. Consider, in Russia, Vladimir Putin jails Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershavikovich as a spy. Now comes news that Putin has upped his hostage count arrested Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty reporter Alsu Kermasheva on a similar charge. In Niger, coup leaders accused journalist Samira Sabu of treason. 
In Guatemala, the regime sentenced Jose Ruben Zamora, the publisher of a leading newspaper, on trumped-up charges of fiscal irregularities. In the Philippines, former President Rodrigo Duarte's slanders online and in court against Maria Ressa were so outrageous that her courage in the face of them won Risa a Nobel Peace Prize. We need to ask ourselves why tactics that are common in non-democratic countries are now being deployed right here in the home of the free, the brave and the First Amendment. Wake up and smell the rot, America. There's a formula that fits each of these cases. People with money and power are trying to mobilize populist resentment, resentment that by all rights should be aimed at them, toward journalists. In other words, the elites label the very people who are calling out their privilege the elites. To accomplish this jujitsu, they use inflammatory code words like communist and China, words that elicit strong emotions and distract from the real issues at hand. All too often, it works. Stoking hate is a lot easier than answering legitimate questions. Because I know that, I thought long and hard about writing this piece. I know it could inflame an army of trolls for whom, the record shows, women journalists are favorite targets. More sobering, I know that because Yang Shi is young and Asian, in addition to being a woman, she'll be more of a magnet. In 2021, according to one report, hate crimes against Asian communities in the United States went up 339%. According to the latest national survey commissioned by Stop AAPI Hate, half of Asian Americans and Pacific Islander respondents said they have experienced discrimination. Either Nebraska Governor Pillen doesn't know this and is inexcusably clueless about the demons of hate that his intemperate speech could stir up, or worse, he does know it and is hoping it will aid and abet his campaign of intimidation. This by Kathy Keeley, who covered Congress and national politics for USA Today from 1998 to 2010. Okay, I'm going to read another column um, by Rex Hupke out of the USA Today. Halloween's over. It's time to decorate for Christmas. Halloween is over. Merry Christmas. That's right, people. It's November 1st, and that means we're in the fast lane of the holiday highway. Deck those halls. If you aren't already neck deep in tinsel and heave-ho-ho-hoeing your 12-foot-tall outdoor Halloween skeletons into the garage and replacing them with 15-foot-tall inflatable snowmen, I have to ask, where? what is your Yuletide problem? It's Christmas time, you expletive. Get off your expletive and get with the program. If you don't celebrate Christmas, I apologize for the yelling. Don't worry, you'll only have to put up with about... 1,500 more hours of this over the next two months. Back to you, you lackadaisical Christmas revelers. The clock is ticking. Have you wrapped a single present? Have you given a thought to what kind of infrastructure repairs your Christmas village might need this year? What if that bridge collapses? 
The pumpkins should be in the compost bin. The costumes should be in the attic. And things should be getting gosh darn festive in your house ASAP. What do you think this is? Early November? Why can't you be more like the good holiday capitalists at department and home improvement stores? They've had Christmas decorations up since August, as Santa Claus intended. But here you are, day after Halloween, and that's there's not so much as a whiff of a pine-scented candle. Get your act together. There are fewer than 60 days until Christmas, and the holiday isn't going to celebrate itself. I can already hear the procrastinating whiners out there. Oh, but wait, we haven't even eaten our Halloween candy yet. For the love of Mariah Carey, put that candy in a pot, melt it down, pour it over some Crispix, then sprinkle it with crumbled up peppermint candy, you ingrates. And then there's this pathetic chestnut. Christmas decorations? It's not even Thanksgiving yet. Please, is that the best you've got to excuse your twinkling light-free yard? Everybody knows Thanksgiving is a speed bump holiday en route to Christmas. It's nothing more than a refueling stop for people who've spent weeks perfecting the animatronic flying Rudolph that descends from the roof of the house to the elaborate Christmas penguin igloo below. Duh. Quit making excuses. Sweep whatever indoor Halloween decor you might have into a giant garbage bag and fa-la-la fling it into the garage. It's Christmas, baby. I want elves on shelves, carols blaring out of speakers, and enough tiny LEDs to burn an elf's retina. Tis the season, you lazy oafs. Get it in gear. That was columnist Rex Hupke. He uh, is on X, formerly Twitter, and Facebook.com. Okay, now letters to the editor. This first is by Holly Herbert from Des Moines. Chelsea Lepley has shown that she would represent everybody. I'm a resident of the East Side who had grandparents who built a home on East 27th Street in the 1960s and enjoy the diversity that our side of town has to offer. However, I'm tired of seeing self-storage facilities replace the stores I used to shop at as a child. I'm tired of feeling like the city plows our streets last. I'm tired of having a city council representative who won't do the bare minimum when it comes to showing support for minority communities and reproductive rights. I'm tired of having a city council representative who doesn't respond to the citizens of her ward unless they have monetary wealth. Chelsea Lepley is a third generation East Side resident, grew up in a union household and is the only non-elected individual I know that attends every city budgetary meeting, volunteered for the Polk County Affordable Housing Trust Fund, and served on the Des Moines Parks and Recreation Board. She believes in making all residents of the city feel welcome and has been endorsed by several minority community leaders, such as Joshua Barr, former director of the Des Moines Civil and Human Rights Commission. Chelsea Lepley has my wholehearted support in the Ward 2 City Council election, again by Holly Herbert of Des Moines. This next is from Robert Mahaffey, also of Des Moines. Des Moines residents and taxpayers deserve someone they know and trust to show up for them and get important things done. Our city is at a critical junction on affordable housing, 
and Linda Westergaard has the experience and integrity we need to ensure that every family in Des Moines can afford to live and work here. Linda Westergaard knows how to lead, and I trust her to carry on her legacy of making sure Des Moines is a wonderful place for everybody, for everyone to live, work, and play. Linda Westergaard has been a strong advocate for the brave men and women in our police force and fought to give them the tools and resources they need to make us safer and increase response times. It is so important to build trust and maintain relationships between our police officers and the community. Throughout her time on the City Council, Linda Westergaard has been out in the community and listening to her neighbors. We can always count on her to show up and fight for what is right for the people of Ward 2. Choose efficiency. Choose proven, leaders, proven leadership. I am voting for Linda Westergaard on November 7. That from Robert Mahaffey of Des Moines. This last one is from Dan Pardock, also of Des Moines. In November 2019, the Des Moines School District revealed a controversial plan to shutter the Hoover, North, and Lincoln High School football stadiums, replacing them with a $20 million facility at Drake University funded by the taxpayers. Shockingly, the Des Moines School Board devised this unpopular project behind closed doors without soliciting any public input. I was part of a grassroots movement that gathered over 7,000 signatures urging a public referendum on the matter. At the time, Rob Barron, now a city council candidate, served on the school board. His approach was to challenge our right to vote on this important issue. Instead of embracing democratic principles, he opted to fight in court to deny citizens their fundamental say in the community's future at the ballot box. Unlike his opponent, Chris Coleman has a proven track record of effective leadership. He showcased his abilities most recently during the campaign to approve the local option sales tax, enabling the city to lower property taxes for every homeowner. Coleman played a pivotal role in educating residents and empowering them to improve our community through voting. Thanks to his efforts, the citizens approved the initiative, fortifying the city's financial foundation. On November 7, the residents of Ward 1 face a critical decision about their city council representation, choosing the leader who will guide them forward. Chris Coleman stands out as a leader who genuinely values and respects citizen input. In a world where actions speak louder than words, Coleman's proven commitment to our community sets him apart as a trustworthy choice. And that is from Dan Pardock of Des Moines. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section now, and I'm going to start with the um, some TV times and teams playing tonight, Thursday. November 2nd, we have college football at, now these are Eastern time, so I'm going to let you do the conversion. Um, college football, 7 p.m. Eastern time tonight on FS1. TSU is at Texas Tech. At 7.30 p.m. on ESPN, we have Wake Forest at Duke. 
On ESPN2, we have South Alabama at Troy. On ESPNU, we have Mississippi Valley State at Bethune-Cookman. And for NBA basketball tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, we have NBA TV. Toronto is at Philadelphia. And at 10 p.m. following that game, we have San Antonio at Phoenix, also on NBA TV. Tonight, we have NFL football on at 8.15 p.m. on Prime Video with Tennessee at Pittsburgh. I'm going to turn now to a high school volleyball article, Dowling, Waukee Northwest win 5A semis. This is by Eli McCowan. Through the entirety of the Class 5A Iowa high school volleyball season, Des Moines area schools from the CIML were the leaders of the pack. Thursday's state title match will reflect that as top seed Dowling Catholic and number three Waukee Northwest will square off for the crown on Thursday morning after advancing from the semifinals. Even though neither school has won a volleyball state title, both have earned the right to play for one after defeating some tough competition in Coralville. I think our conference is very strong, said Dowling Catholic coach Mary Wiskus. It challenges us every day, makes us better, and sharpens the sword a little bit for us. For the Maroons, this marks their second-ever appearance in the state final match, the first since 2013. For the Wolves, this is their first-ever appearance since splitting from Waukee ahead of the 2021 campaign. In three matches this season, the Maroons defeated Waukee Northwest twice, including the most recent matchup on October 5th when Dowling Catholic won three of four sets, 25 to 19, 25 15, 20 to 25, and 25 21. However, this Waukee Northwest team is embracing the underdog role. Senior leader Katrina Pelds called her shot before following the team's semifinal victory. Dowling better be ready because we're coming, Pelds said. One thing that was evident after four sets of action was that these schools were as evenly matched as it gets. Heading into the fifth and final set, the match was going to come down to who could rise to the occasion. Ultimately, it was the Wolves who prevailed after Northwest took a 7-2 lead to start. Ankeny Centennial bounced back to take a one-point lead at 9-8. Then Waukee Northwest roared back and won the set 15-11. We knew this was it, Peld said. This is the year, so we had to pull through. Just scrap something together and just kick them. Felds led the team with 15 kills on the day. Her energy throughout the match was apparent, directing her teammates into position and holding her team accountable after mistakes. Each and every play she made was followed by a loud scream and celebrations with her teammates. We've wanted this for so long, Peld said. We've had so many ups and downs throughout the entire season, and we just came through. Those ups and downs were headlined by Waukee Northwest's coach, Jody Vogt. Being placed on administrative leave at one point during the season, she has since rejoined the team and was incredibly proud of how her group responded in the face of adversity. You can either take that and use it to make you guys better, or you can take it and it splits up the team, Vogt said. We definitely used it to make our team stronger. They'll be the underdog heading into the final against number one Dowling Catholic, but that's exactly where Pels and this team feel comfortable being. For Ankeny Centennial, the team fell short of its goal, finishing the season 31-7. The Jaguars, Jaguars will return star Delaney Miller, who finished with a team-leading 16 kills and was one of the top recruits in the entire tournament. 
Early and often, the Maroons turned toward their star outside hitter, Dean. In three sets, the Kansas commit posted 15 kills, three aces, and two blocks. While known for her high-flying play, she continued to score points for her team in any way possible. Her junior setter, Ella Rogers, had 38 of the team's 42 total assists. Time and time again, Rogers was setting up her senior dean for points. I can give her any ball, and I know she'll take care of it, Rogers said. Dean is known as a power outside hitter, but it was her finesse around the net that saw her score late to clinch a spot in the title match, opting for a soft touch over the net to catch Pleasant Valley's defense off guard. It is a team game. I could not have done this alone, Dean said. Every single person on the team had a role, and we all did our role and executed. The Maroons will have confidence heading into Thursday's final with a 2-1 to season series lead over the Wolves. However, the pressure of winning the school's first-ever state title will be weighing on the mind of the roster overnight, especially for the juniors like Rogers, who are looking to win for their seniors. We want to play for our seniors, Rogers said. It's their last year. We want to let them make history. Okay, we now turn to Dear Abby. Holidays have become less fun with the in-laws around. Dear Abby, my daughter's in-laws have no place to go on holidays. They have two children but haven't spoken to one of them in several years. So my son-in-law is their only family close by. I enjoy entertaining and having family over, but I really don't care for their company. It's a different vibe when they're here because her father-in-law, Sam, and my husband drink too much and talk politics, both activities I avoid. They know how I feel, but make comments behind my back thinking I don't hear them. My husband loves their company and goes out often with my son-in-law and Sam. My daughter understands how I feel. She doesn't like to cook or entertain, but will host a holiday once in a while. However, it doesn't solve the problem because I end up doing a lot of the work and I miss not entertaining in my own home. Please advise. That is from Catch-22 in New York. Abby says, Dear Catch-22, I'm not sure why you feel it's your responsibility to entertain your daughter's in-laws on every holiday. Discuss this with your husband when he's sober and tell him you don't like it when he and Sam get drunk, talk politics, and make snide remarks behind your back. Inform him he should be more respectful or the in-laws won't be invited to your home for the holidays anymore. Nowhere in your letter did you mention your daughter's mother-in-law. Do you have anything in common with her? If so, spend most of your time with her and your daughter. Or, once the meal has been served, ask them if they'd like to go out to a movie, get some exercise, etc. That way you won't be forced to stick around when the boys over-imbibe and indulge themselves in their favorite subject. The next letter is Dear Abby. Recently, my current husband went on a fishing trip with my brother. My brother was drinking and confided to him that my ex-husband cheated on me. My brother was present when it happened. I was shocked, to say the least. I felt so betrayed by both. I can't believe my brother would keep this secret from me, 
but my ex-husband has some dirt on my brother as well. I sent my brother a text telling him how upset I am about his having kept that secret from me. Had I known the truth, it could have changed my life in so many ways. He wants to talk about it with me, but I'm not interested in doing that right now. I don't know if I can get past this. Can you advise if I'm doing the right thing? That is from Betrayed in California. Dear Betrayed, I understand why you are furious, and it might be better if you don't discuss this with your brother until you have had a chance to cool down. While it's logical that you might not be able to trust your brother again, I do think that at some point you should hear him out. Once you have done that, you will be in a better position to decide whether you want to have a relationship. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Teresa Whitaker, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. Earlier, you heard Dave Stutz and Lisa Horsch. You can listen to IRS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.